Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser, and this is The Stick Up. Mark Burris is a household name both here and abroad. He is well known as being a successful businessman who founded Wizard Home Loans. Mark has two podcasts, The Mentor and Straight Talk. He's also the former host of Celebrity Apprentice. Mark is a passionate boxer and sports lover. I first met Mark at the airport. I was really keen to meet him. I'd asked Danny Green, former boxer Danny Green, to give me an intro. Lo and behold, I met him at the uh, airport going through security. Mark Burris, welcome to the stick-up. Russell Manza. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the welcome. We uh, we meet again. and um, I, I, Mate, I... Um, I was talking to Danny Green and um, about boxer Danny Green. I was saying, because you know, uh, he was going to line up a meeting with us. And um, and I said, I finally met Mark at the airport. And I said, we had it. And, and I, I spoke to Jess, your uh, producer. And, and I said, it's like I've known him for 30 years, this bloke. And I, and then Greeny was saying, that's what he does with everyone. That's what he, he, mate, where does that come from? I just know lots of people. I know, and I've done lots of shit in my life. Like, you know, like not necessarily, you know, all sort of top-line stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, like I'm 66, man. So over a 66-year period in various careers and, you know, growing up in different areas and then moving to another area, I mean, I get to meet all sorts of weird and wonderful people and uh, I get on with everybody. So I take everybody how they approach me. So if someone approaches me in a good way, I'm cool back to them. So I try to be nice and, and I try to build relationships. At the airport, mate, you got more hellos than Pope, <laughs> and you were, you know, and you engaged. That's what amazes me. And before we jumped on the plane, some bloke walked up to you with a prospectus about some investment thing, yeah. and you gladly took it off him. And I watched you on the plane reading it away. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, that's sort of. I mean, I get bored, and I, I guess that's why I read it. But the other thing too, Russell, is that uh, everyone deserves a chance in my life. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been given plenty of chances by. I'm lucky enough to have been given chance by all sorts of unusual people, people powerful and what have you. And I know it's not fair that no one else gets them chances. So um, I guess from my point of view, I think everyone, if someone's going to walk up to me and give me something to read, well, you know, good on them. And therefore I should uh, give them respect and at least read the thing they gave me. It wasn't something for me. I sent him a note back though. I just said, mate, it's not something for me, dude. But like, doesn't matter. I mean, I just respect the fact that out of the balls to – Give me something. And by the way, the reason everyone says hello to me at the airport because I'm a fucking there every week. So a bit like you, <laughs> I've been spending my life at airports except for the COVID period for the last 20 years. So uh, I tend to just – I actually recognise people that have been there for a long time. Let's backtrack a bit. 
Mate, growing up in Punchbowl, tell us about that. Well, I, I grew up in a so my man's uh, Greek uh, immigrant brought come to Australia. Um, he's George, George, yeah, yeah. that's him. I've done and, my research, mate. Yeah, you did your research. So Pop is one of uh, six boys who came to Australia from Greece uh, straight after World War Two, um, and uh, he, they they lived in Maroubra. So um, and Mum was a East suburbs girl. Um, but my old man didn't want to work for his dad um, and married a non-Greek. My mum's Irish descent, so uh, married an Irish person. So, And as a result of marrying an Irish, she's an Irish Catholic. Uh, so as a result of that, uh, we had to be mum's pretty tough and uh, we had to be Christian Catholics. So my dad's father wasn't happy about that because, you know. Greek, Greek Orthodox? Greek Orthodox. So, so dad had a Catholic, non-Greek Catholic wife with Catholic kids. So therefore my grandfather wasn't. Basically, didn't want to look after my dad, mm. and uh, he didn't get kicked out of the family, but he basically got stripped of most of his rights. And the deal was in those days. I mean, going back a long time, the deal was in those days: you work for me, you work for the family, you get out, you get money from the family. So, dad not having any money, mum not having any money. She was broke as a church mouse, so they moved to Punchbowl, and uh, I was born in Punchbowl, and I, I was lucky. I mean, I was sort of born in an area where there was a, a behind us. Now, most people be horrified by this, but there was a tip right on our boundary. Mm. I loved it because mm. there was rats and shit there, and uh, my dad's brother lived with us. Uh, his youngest brother got me a gun, you know, what do you call it, like a, a pellet gun? Yeah, a, a slug gun. Yeah. Slug, no, slug gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mum caught me shooting the bird, so she took it off me, but I used to shoot the rats, and uh, I used to pick up junk out of there. They turned it into a park over time, but so I, I was pretty happy Growing up there, I had a brother and a sister, younger brother and sister, substantially younger than me. And um, my mum's two sisters live with us and my mum's, my dad's youngest brother live with us. So we had a lot of people. I got brought up by village, I guess. You know, we had the houses, the next street around. You know, we weren't houses, but we had houses around the corner. But they were all friends of mine. I played footy with them and touched footy with them. And, you know, usual stuff, getting blues and stuff like that. But, you know, it's nothing too bad, you know. You and I done a you-know-who-you-know-who-I-know-you-know you know type of thing at the airport, and um, some of the names you dropped to me, mate, were like some heavyweights of uh, the criminal underworld today, you know what I mean? And was that ever a temptation for you to ever go down that way? or Sort of not a temptation, um, but I did know them. Um, I grew up with a lot of them, hmm. um, and some of them I represented um, over the many years uh, in, in you know, a professional sense. And I, as I said earlier, I take people the way they treat me. I, I never... If someone's been charged with a crime, and I don't care what the crime is. Mm. Well, I do care what the crime yeah. is. Some crimes are bar. Um, but I take the view that they're innocent until proven guilty. And when they do their time or whatever the case may be, then they've served their sentence. They've done what society's wanted of them. So I just say, cool. And uh, I, I remain friends with most people. As Greeny said, I don't like making enemies. Mm. I very rarely make enemies. And if I make an enemy, it's usually for a fucking good reason. There's, there's, they've done something really bad, some shit to me. But other than that, my, my, these dudes, I know them. I just know these people. And uh, some of them I train with. That's boxing, isn't it? I used to box with them. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I, I got one really close mate who's, you know, he's been in jail a lot and uh, been accused of some horrible things. But I box, I used to box with him, and um, he's out these days. He's much older now. He's in his 70s. But him and I are good mates. We catch up once or twice a year. And I don't see any reason why I should bar him. Yeah, but I won't. See, the way I see it, Russell, is that is this. The law is man-made. It's a fiction. God didn't give us the laws. Mm. I mean, the only thing God might have given us is the commandments. Mm. 
the Ten Commandments, if he did it all. I don't know if that's a real story, but Moses tells us, but like, let's assume it is for a minute. And they, they're sort of common sense laws, okay? But all the rest of the laws are man-made. They're legal fictions. And if you choose to live in Australia, then you choose to be, you have to choose to abide by those fictions. But it doesn't mean you're a bad person, mm. per se. Some people I know have never been in jail are fucking bad people. You can be a psychopath and not kill anyone. You can be a psychopath in business. I've seen some, yeah, bi- totally. some business people over the years and you go, that bloke is a psychopath. Mate, I know them. <laughs> I've dealt with them. And, uh, and they will do more damage to you than in business but get away with it mm. and no punishment. And I've seen that happen over and over again. I've seen poor bastards, like people who can't defend themselves, people who work their asses off and you just get screwed over commercially yep. in business by people more powerful than them for no reason at all. I used to sit in jail and think that. I used to see some bloke just took over, wiped out 500 families, their jobs are gone. No empathy or compassion or anything or no, you know, uh, sort of compensation or anything like that for those people. And I think, oh, man, that bloke's a psychopath to do that. Yeah, and, and, and we'll go without any punishment and we'll do it over and over again. And I often wonder what, what the point of them doing it. And the reason there is no point because they are psychopathic. Mm. They don't have any feeling or empathy whatsoever. And it doesn't mean I go around like I'm not a bleeding heart and go around feeling sorry for everybody. That's not the case. But I always got taught by my mum certain standards you know you don't shit on people who are not as strong as you in any respect whether it's business or physically or mentally or just how you got brought up you just don't go shitting on people like that mm. ever talking about your mum your mum played a big significant she, she identified something from a young age that you were sort of could possibly go off the rails or anything like that and, and she took action what did she do um my mother when I was 17. So I started school when I was really young. I don't know what the reason is. So I finished school when I was 17. I did the HSC when I was 17. And I, and I went to school out of banks. And I, did, I did all right in the HSC. I, not because I was trying to go to uni or anything like that. I was just competitive. You know? I, I was competitive. I want to be best at school and best at footy or whatever. But I had no ambition. I, I just wanted to be uh, – I want to play footy um, and maybe become a brickie. And, um, you know, I want to play footy f- – uh, in those Back days. Back in those days, it's, you, that was the ultimate, becoming a tradesman, wasn't it? Oh, bloody hell. I thought, but Bricky made good money in those days, plus you worked outdoors. And I just thought to myself, I finish at three, I can go and train with the Bulldogs, or they were called the Berries in those days, go and train with Canterbury. I played rep foot, footy up to that period, you know, I was, so I knew I could, I, would, I could get selected into the rep side. Um, and, you know, there was an invitation there to train with them. But, and a lot of my mates are going to do exactly the same thing. Like, you know, I played footy with the guys who ended up playing State of Origin and played for Canada first grade. Like, they're who all they? What gives Graham Muse. Graham Muse, yeah. for example. Like, you yeah. know, yeah. he was in my class. I was in his team. The brothers. They were brothers, weren't they? There was Mark, who was older, and Gary older again, and Graham was the youngest. Yep. And Graham, Graham and Mark played State of Origin. Hmm. And uh, Graham's also, you know, played Sheffield Shield, played for New South Wales in cricket. Not many blokes played both for state cricket and rugby league. And, and, you know, when I was playing the rep side, a lot of the guys in my rep side ended up playing first grade. Um, but, but my mum, she grabbed hold of me. She said, you're not going to play football. You're not doing that. She grabbed me. Like, my mum wasn't, like, that big a disciplinarian. She was pretty strong. But, but the, on this occasion, she said, you're coming with me to university and I'm going to enrol you. And I said, I don't want to do that. She said, I'm going to enrol you at the University of New South Wales. I'm coming out with you. And I'm going to make sure you enrol. And she enro- took me out of the university and she enrolled me. And, uh, like, I was like a kid. Like, like my, my mum's I – mean, no, no other kid's mum was there. Just me, my mum. And uh, she did it and she maybe then um, 
and she, the, you know, there's no money. We had no money. So, like, I was trying to work out how I was going to live and everything. And so the cops were there, and New South Wales police were there. And they were doing, um, what do you call it, uh, like scholarships or something like that. But you had to go and do an interview with the New South Wales police down here at Goulburn Street, where, the old, where they used to train them. And, uh, and, uh, and, and mum said, you've got to go to the police. And I wasn't happy about that part. But she said, you've got to go to the police and do an interview. And they'll pay you to go to university, do a law degree. I said, Mom, that's not my go. I said, my mates never talked to me. <laughs> I'm brushed for life. But fortunately, you know, I, for me, I went down there and did an interview and, uh, you know, for some weird reason, the bloke who did the interview, copper, asked me to take my shirt off. And uh, I jerry what was going on. I said, yeah, I won't say what I said to him, but I, I give him a golfful. And uh, Mum was waiting outside, went out and told her. She said, oh, well, we're not going in there. Come on, let's go. And, and she, I didn't have to do that. She just made me go and get a job with my dad. What did your dad do? Dad was a factory worker. Um, so he worked in the factory behind our house. Um, and he, he worked at a place called Susie Diecastings. And they used to make parts of Victor Mowers and shit like that. And I had to go and work there and for, for one day a week. You know, the money I earned uh, when I was living at home, mum made me pay, you know, I had to pay a third of it to, as board. And they're all things that, you know, like if you ask young kids, I couldn't ask young kids, I couldn't ask my kids to do it. I, I'd just be, feel too bad to do it. I wish I had of. But I just, uh, I did it. You know, like it, it was na- like second nature to me. Like, you know, I came up, whatever I want to give you a third. But she didn't take the money and spend it. They took it and they bought a, a thing. She said, we're going to put the money towards a sideboard and like a place where we can put our plates and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. I was happy about that. And I remember when she bought it at Christmas and I saw it up there. She bought it up at uh, Grace Brothers or something like that. And uh, I remember when it got delivered, it was, oh, I was pretty proud that I helped contribute towards that, yeah. Mm. It was smart. But your school had a motto of uh, never give up. You went to the same school as uh, Paul Keating, yeah? Yep. My school had the motto of never give up your mate. it <laughs> 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 My school had a fence around it, and the teachers used to say, we're getting you ready for jail. That's true. That's true. And we used to have this big cyclone fence around it. Around. Mate, who was, who was like, um, people who influenced you at school? Um, probably the headmaster. Um, so it was a Catholic school. So um, the headmaster there was a guy called Brother Quentin. His real name is Henry O'Halloran. And I had a, another teacher called Mr. Keeble, Mick Keeble. And they were a big influence on me. They're just nice to me, talked to me, and uh, they were supportive of me, and... Uh, and encourage me to study. I'd only study for, like to be competitive. That, that's like if I knew, in other words, I don't want to do bad in the exam. I want to do as well as everyone else. So I studied the last couple of weeks, you know what I mean? But Brother Quentin, he encouraged me to like school. So he, he started to uh, you know, get me to enjoy the, the, the subjects I was, I was studying. Before I didn't give a shit, I just did it because I had to do it, you know? Mm. That was school. Got to do an exam, got to do an essay, do it. But he, he sort of got to me, just a nice dude, you know, like uh, very quietly spoken, big tall guy, big guy, really quietly spoken. And I was amazed at how the timbre of his voice, I remember as a young guy now, the timbre of his voice and the, the gentleness of the way he spoke. And then he just gave me unbelievable guidance, you know, like, uh, you know, Mark, you know, why don't you read this book? This book will help you and so on. So, like, it was like I was getting you know, some nurturing extra help, you know, for no reason. Like, yeah. but he did it everybody, not just me, but I mm. felt like it was pretty cool. And the other guy, Keeble, he's just a nice person, he knew my parents. And so, you know, I think school is a function of what you think of your teacher mm. for everybody. 
Mm. I don't care what school you go to. Yeah, I had a similar teacher, Mr. McNamara, Tony McNamara, and he was the New South Wales PWSS uh, rugby league coach, and he was just a good guy. And that, as you say, that that tone and how he talked to me and that sort of stuff got from me because it was very nurturing for someone like myself. I needed that. You know, I'm never going to be that guy that gets taught by some do this, do that. You know, and people screaming down. And Joey Williams and I talked about it in that thing. He does. You know, he doesn't. He didn't learn that way. He learnt from Johnny Lewis in a nurturing, loving way. Oh, I think that there's a big lesson in that, Russell. Like, uh, and maybe one of the reasons why I, I am the way I am these days and want to help people is because, you know, maybe that's some experience that I had that I thought was good. You know, I actually like to help people. Like, it's funny, you know, Joey, you know, he, he's a good dude and, and Johnny's got a quite a softness about him. He's not soft, but, you know, in a, so- mm. a softness there, a gentleness. Mm. Mate, you know as well, growing up, you didn't want to ever expose yourself like that. You would say, well, someone might say, well, you know, what's the deal? Yeah, you know, yeah, something yeah. going on here. Yeah. But these guys had enough courage to expose it and there was nothing going on. Like, mm. let me tell you, nothing going on as far as I was concerned, at least. I never saw any. But they were prepared to show me soft, soft side to themselves, feminine side to them. And I don't want to sound like, you know, it's getting a bit weird. But but uh, as a kid, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, vulnerability. And they are open to, yeah. to say, Mark... You know, like, the, and they showed me shit that I would never have ever thought of. Like, in especially, I, I got to love, it sounds a bit weird, but I got to love poetry. I still love poetry. Mm. And um, I love reading poetry. And I, for a period there, about um, about 10 years ago, I, I wrote a lot of poems. I got a little book of poems. I got a little red book, all these poems that I wrote. I, my favorite poet, still is today, is a guy called Jeremy Lee Hopkins. He was a Jesuit priest, and it was a, something I studied at school. And my favorite poem was a, a poem called The Wind Hover. And it's about uh, a falcon hovering in the wind and, and, and the movements of the falcon. And uh, this brother Quentin, he taught me to appreciate this sort of stuff and uh, not something I'd ever heard or seen before. And I, I got a glimpse of maybe an artistic world or a glimpse of another world. Creativity. I, yeah, it's creative. And, and maybe, you know, I never, I've never seen it since. No, no one's ever, you know, spoken to me about it since. Um, I had a girlfriend who was sort of interested in it at one stage, that type of stuff. But... Generally speaking, it's not something I've ever found interesting, but I've always kept that as a little part of my life. In fact, that poem, I have a printout of that poem with my notes on it, still in a black folder that I have at work that I carry around a few things that I've always that I've sort of accumulated over the years. Yeah. Uh, do you have? Do you think it's a reminder of a certain time in your life? Or? Yeah, I think it's a reminder of the power of stuff that we don't, especially these days, that we don't ever consider poetry. It's great. It's great. I think it does something. You might have done a bit in jail. And it does something to your mind. It unleashes something for me. It's like a creative flow. Yeah. Which for you, and, and, and I know for myself, when I can unopen un, un that door, I can take that into business. I can take that anyway and be creative anywhere. It helps you forget shit too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of uh, clears your mind for some reason. I don't know. It's, maybe it's meditative or something along that line. But, um, but, but like 30 years ago, today you've got a mobile phone. That's Everything's in there, right? Your address, your, 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 all your shit, now your m- m- credit cards and your diaries in there. I used to have this black leather sort of diary that had a zipper on it and then inside it there was a, a like a little pouch and you could put things in the credit cards and your business cards and bits of paper. And then on the other side of, of the diary were these pages and it have, you know, the date and you could put write notes in there and, uh, you know, fill your own diary out in those days. And you would write notes about your meetings for the day and it was good. It was a good record. I used to keep this as a record. I used to carry it everywhere. And I got encouraged to do this by this lawyer guy I work for, a guy called David Bapsky, who David, 
said, "You got to, as soon as I arrived there, two things he told me to do. One, you got to wear a striped tie. I said, why do I hate striped ties? This is the days of Paisley ties, by the way. This is in the 80s. And I said, striped, are you kidding me? And uh, But he was much senior to me. He was the boss of the joint. And he said, no, you've got to wear because he said, people, clients will look at you, and if you don't wear a striped tie, they won't think you're determined. You're not determined enough. So in his view, striped tie meant determination, so I had to get a striped tie. And the second thing he told me, he said, you've got to get one of these. It's a comp- called a compendium, but you have to get one of these black diaries. Mm-hmm. And I carry, you carry it everywhere with you. And he said, and you always keep your notes in there. And, uh, and I, I, I carry that until mobile phones become a thing. Um, and uh, I still got it. And, and inside that pocket, I've got that poem, the Jeremy Lee Hopkins poem with all my notes on it. I've got bits of paper that David gave me, David Basket gave me over the years about things like, little sayings like, um, one, I know one saying that's written in there that he gave me, it said something like, um, talent is good, but persistence is always wins so in other words don't give a shit how talented you are but the more effort you put into what you do and more persistent you are with it you're more likely to succeed than the talent or another one was unrewarded talent is almost a proverb and he's right how many people do we know yeah. at school that could do anything but never achieved Nothing. anything because because they're, they're so freaking talented when you're in prison, at Christmas time, you get Salvation Army come around. They give you this pack, and it's a diary, a packet of lollies, a pair of socks, and a hanky. Right? Every year they they, they, they get a hand. Everyone looks forward to the salvos. Got this diary, and I got these diaries, and you get a new one every year. And mine's full of quotes. I like Neil Donald Walsh. If you don't go within, you go without. You know all these different quotes. I've still got them today. And as you say, you go back and look for them and sort of reminisce. I do the same. But know? it's funny Instagram today. I mean, we do it on on my Instagram page. We put these quotes up as if it's something brand new, like no one's ever thought of this shit before. But here, you're just saying you and I were collecting these things 20, 20 odd years ago, mm. and uh, and and I still got them. Yeah, someone was giving them to me. I mean, sure, I wasn't. They weren't publishing them for a thousand or a hundred thousand people, two hundred thousand people. They were publishing them. He was just giving it to me, one person at a time. I never handed on to anybody. But in some respects, maybe I'm doing that now with my podcast, you know, my Instagram pages. Maybe I am doing what these guys did for me 40 years ago. This is 40, 40 years ago I was getting this stuff. You'll see a bit of my stuff, mate. My, you go up my uh, story a bit, some of your stuff, your quotes. I share them under my story a bit. I I normally, want, about, normally about once a week, I think. I think my average is your stuff, and I really appreciate it. Mate, the, the similarities with boxing and business. 100%. What, what's your take on that? I've got mine. Yeah, okay. Well, the thing about boxing is, especially once you're in the ring and you, you're, you're, like you've, you've got a, a fight on, you're fighting with somebody in the ring, as opposed to just doing boxer size, for example, is that you're on your own. You've done all the preparation, but you're on your own. No one's going to save you. And sometimes when you're in the corner, you have to take the punches, you have to roll with it, or... You have to move out of the corner, just get out, move away. Or sometimes you have to trade. You know, you've got to get on the offensive. That's boxing. Business is the same to me. Mm, I see that with you. Sometimes you just got to roll with the shit and just cop it. Like, you can't do much. You're just moving around, rolling. Eventually, it'll run out of puff. A good example is right now. Interest rates are going up. And my business is a lending business. And during interest rate rise periods, we get less people borrow money. And we lend less per transaction. So we've got less transactions and less per transaction, which means I'll make less money. There's no point in me blowing up about it. 
I just roll with it because I know sooner or later that'll run out of puff. Just like if you're in the corner in a ring and, and, and someone's belting the shit out of you, they're not going to be able to do it for more than five or 10 or maybe 15 punches. And as long as you know to protect yourself and roll and you feel comfortable, you'll be okay because then your turn will come. Yeah. And I know the economy, the economy, this, and I'm, you know, I've studied this stuff obviously because it's my business, but downturns, when interest rates go up, that is, as a res- and downturns result, usually only last, historically, only last nine to 10 months. Upturns, when interest rates are flat or going down, in other words, the economy's going great, usually last for, on average, 2.6 years. So I know that, on average, I'm going to have more upturns, more better times than shit times. So just like in the ring, I know that the guy's not going to be able to throw too many punches. You, you know, you, no, most blokes can't throw more, put more than four or five punches together. Mm. And so you sustain the punishment. You just take it, and then it's your turn. Yeah, yeah. Get on top, and then that's what boxing's all about. But you're on your own. And you get found out if you haven't made the sacrifices. Shit, yeah. If, if, I mean, the first fight I ever had, I remember, like, I was really fit, young guy, pretty fit. But, you know, the emotion attached to jumping in the ring and people around me, gas me. I got gas from adrenaline. You know, I remember I went and went watched one of my sons had his first fight about my second eldest son had his Who's first. Who's the oldest, Dane or Alex? Dane. Okay. Then Alex, number two. Yeah. And then Nick and Jimmy. And then I went to watch Alex. Is <laughs> his first fight. And he was, he's a fit bastard. And uh, he was fighting um, a Samoan guy. The guy was a bit older than him, hmm. much bigger than him. And uh, Alice going killing him first round. Don't as an amateur fight, two, three twos. And uh, first round is going good. Second round, I, I was standing. I said to Dane, "Oh shit, he's starting to get a bit white, and uh, his legs starting to get wobbly." He was gassed yeah. just from adrenaline, not from fitness, just from adrenaline. He lost the fight as a result of it because he, just, he got to a point where he couldn't hold his fucking hands up. I'm yelling at him, "Fucking put your hands up!" And uh, he couldn't keep his hands up, but because he's just totally gassed. So sometimes that happens in business too. So you can be completely prepared in business, but sometimes you'll gas because mm. you're just not used to what's going to happen. And one of the great things about being in business is becoming experienced and learning how to handle that adrenaline situation or being gassed, irrespective of how well-skilled you are in the particular thing you're trying to do. It happens to us all at some stage. And because then you see these people puff their chest up and they're, I'm going into business and I'm going to set up an Instagram and I'm going to be doing all these things. I've got these great ideas and it's global, going to go global. And I think, cool, I love that. And I'm prepared and I've done all my homework and I've got this expert, expert and they go into business and, mate, after about three months, they run out of puff. Watching them get that experience is just like me watching my son jump in the ring and the, for, for the first time. I love watching both of those. I love observing that stuff. And you follow trends. Like you're going to always pick, oh, mate, drops his hand after he throws a right hand whatever, you know. So someone like yourself, you're looking for trends in business. I'm always looking for trends in business. I'll tell you something funny about that. I, uh, many years ago, Danny Green and I put on an exhibition uh, for the cops and, uh, on a cop night. I'm still the ambassador, I'm the ambassador of New South Wales Boxing, for New South Wales Police Boxing, talking about hold your hands up. So Danny's a very strong guy, as you know. He's a, he's a bit, bit taller than me. Anyway, uh, I got a good one on him and uh, hit him on the chin and he just looked at me. I thought, oh, shit, <laughs> trouble. <laughs> he faked one at me and I it hit me in the guts. I dropped my hands to catch it. Then he faked again to the top, put my hands on the top, and he grabbed me, and he's a strong bastard, and he pulled me in. But as he pulled me in, he hit me straight in the ribs. <laughs> anyway, the back of the ribs. So the next morning, I woke up, and because, you know, like your adrenaline's going, you don't really feel it. I thought, fuck, what's going on here? I got, he's damaged my kidneys. 
and uh, it was a pain, it was ridiculous. So I, I went and saw one of the football rugby league doctors at the Roosters, I went and saw the rugby league, and he did a scan on it. He said, mate, you've got a, this is what happens when you drop, you don't know what you're doing, probe my, he uh, tore my rib cartilage. And mm. mate, I was fucked for about uh, five weeks. Painful injury, I've had it. Thanks, Greeny. Yeah. If you're listening, Greeny, thanks, mate. He'll be listening. I was funny, the other day I was watching that thing on Instagram, Chloe, his daughter's got a boyfriend and he and he got a welcome to the family and he had to put on a body shield and he had to take 50 Danny Green body punches. You serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and Green, he was feeding it to him too. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a good kid. Is, Danny's down there surfing down down at Margaret River. He's Margaret, River, down Margaret, yeah, yeah. Margaret River. I'm going to catch up in a couple of weeks. I'm going over to Perth to, to catch up with him. Ripper of a bloke. And you and him, like, I've got this thing. And I said that, and I've said it to Danny, and, I, and I'll say it to you. You got this thing. Both of you have got this thing that you can walk in a room for a hundred people, and everyone will feel validated, or a king and a queen. I, I've always said it to him, and and, and I'd, at that stage, I'd never really encountered someone like it. But I think you and him both share that same thing. You you both have very similar personalities. Yeah, we get on. We get on well. He knows my kids. Um, or knows Dane, my oldest boy. Um, and uh, he's a good dude. I mean, I. As I said earlier, like same as me, we don't judge anybody, and and we'll move from group to different types of groups all the time. And I've seen Denny talk to corporates, and he knows all sorts of colourful people. Oh, he does. And uh, and but at the same time, the coppers used him for the no punch yeah. campaign and or the the coward punch campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah? yeah. So and he you know and he moves in and out of environments, and it was because he basically respects everybody. One hundred percent. That's yeah. why I think your personalities are very very similar. Mate, tell me, I was listening to your book on the weekend, your audio book on the weekend, and um, you're talking about, you know, how do you find balance? In my life, day to day? Well, I'm a backfiller, so what I mean by that is um, I'll go hard on work, and literally for months, more so these days, when I I start to get tired, I've got to work out how to get a bit of time to myself, but then I've got to think about my kids, and I've got to think about if I've got a partner at the time, I've got to think about her, I've got to think about my parents. Well, my mum's passed away, but I've got to go with my dad. I've got to think about. So what I do is I backfill. So I'm not a person who walks around in life saying, okay, it's 4 p.m., I've got to sit back and have a cup of tea for myself and then uh, get home at 5 o'clock because I've got to hang out with my girlfriend or my partner and, uh, and I'm going to book a holiday at Christmas time because, you know, that's when I take my kids away. I don't do that. I run it hard. Then I say, shit, I better do something else here. And then I'll go and spend a whole lot of time with my dad my brother and I'll just overload on all that stuff. So I overload on everything, but I don't just, but I don't ignore anything. So I, then I'll go and overload on the things that I ignored, so to speak. So, and, and I, I'm very conscious of not overloading on any one thing for too long a period. You know, and, and for me, I know what my priorities are. My priorities are my immediate family. My priorities are, but that's, I'm talking about my brother, sister, mum, and dad, and um, my sons and my grandson these days. Then my friends, I've got a small group of friends who I, you know, make sure I always contact with. Then my business is probably my number one priority. We talk about backfill and um, in your life, mate, how did you, how do you balance your intimate relationships? If I would just park my kids for the moment and not, not talk about it, because that's yeah. a day-to-day thing. Yeah. In relation to my own personal relationships with, uh, you know, wives and girlfriends, over the years, um, to be honest, I haven't been that successful at that. Um, and you know, I have been married, well, I'm three times, and uh, I, but I'm still mates with all of them, and I've I've maintained personal relationships with them, not just because of the kids, but just they're friends, and, you know. And I had a very important part of my life with them. But 
during that period when I was with those particular women, to be frank with you, um, I think I found it impossible. Backfilling didn't work. Personal relationships need to be worked on every day or every couple of days. Um, I always thought it was okay just to backfill. So when you asked me about before about getting balance, and I said I just use backfilling as a method to, to get balance, that's my own personal balance. That's making sure that I don't go nuts, that I remain healthy, and that I have people I can call them, my mum and dad and all that sort of stuff, right? But a personal relationship is a lot different. There's an expectation that you spend more time with your partner. As I said earlier, I just I wasn't successful at that, and as a result of that, I lost them. Is that because of the amount of time you put in the work and business? And yeah. The, yeah. It is. As big, and it wasn't because it was some other party got involved. It was because I just developed differently as a person and I changed over a period of time and I had you know my very first marriage I was only married for four or five years I was 20 when I got married the first time um, my second marriage I was married for 17 years over that period of time I didn't realize because I, I, I'm a I was pretty immature as a guy you know what I mean like I'm not I know business and shit like that but as a character I'm probably pretty emotional immature. maturity emotional immaturity yeah and maybe not that um, emotionally um, clued in if you know what I mean so I, I I don't know I'm just thinking well that's what you do you just go to work and work your ass off and provide for your family and that's that shows how much you love somebody it's tough when people start calling you on that stuff yeah totally they're saying like I know my partner out there the Serbian princess she calls me on it she'll go mate you don't do this you're selfish in this area you're selfish on that and I'm going hold on well no she, but see in those days we're going back a while now my wife wouldn't say anything to me she, until it was sort of too late. It was already done. I wish she had said something to me, and I'd probably go, oh, okay, well, shit, what have I got to do? Yeah. You know, because I, I never want to fuck my family up. I never want to split my family up, ever. When you talk about this, there's a genuine sadness in your eyes about that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I fucked it up. Yeah. It, was, it was, I don't want to say my fault, but it was my doing. And uh, it was and that's my, the price of success, yeah? Some, sometimes, yeah. Well, some guys and girls managed to get it right like, and I'm not one of them and one of the probably the I wouldn't say um, it's not sad I mean one of the failures I mean I look back on and I and I counsel my sons about it by the way I don't, I don't need to counsel them they've seen it they, they know what I fucked up is my relationships you, I don't think you can be married to your job and then be married at home I just don't think it's possible and I've always had one I had one idea in mind be successful at that work that job at all costs whatever it's going to cost and I, but I never thought it would cost my marriage. I never had a clue about that. I always thought everything was sweet, but it wasn't, you know, and I'm slowly drawing away further away, and she's slowly drawing further away, and the only thing we have in common is the kids. And then that becomes a realisation all of a sudden, you think, well, what's the point of being together? We can do this externally. We don't have to be together to be, have the same thing in common. That's a human need to feel loved. Joey, Joey Williams and I discussed it. I had something the other week and I shared it with Joey in the podcast and it was, um, you know, I said it was 2 or 30 in the morning and I woke up and I, I felt healed. I felt this just thing. I had this beautiful woman uh, laying next to me and, I, and I, she was awake and I told her, I said, man, I feel, I feel full from this. It's the first time in my life that my heart's been full of love. You know, it's a pretty special feeling, mate. I don't know if I could gamble with that. When you're younger... I wish I'd known these things when I was younger. When I was younger, I never thought of it, the loss. I, I, I didn't realise, and I was never played defensive. I was always on the attack. Dorian Yates, famous bodybuilder, Mr. Olympia 10 times in a row or some, some massive figure, said when the home life is right, 
everything will fall into place. If you're not conscious of this stuff, which I never was, then it didn't matter rat's ass. Like, I just wasn't conscious of those things. I mean, I was just on another plane. I was conscious of my kids. I had to go and take the footy, take them to training, be there when they play football on the weekend, be the taxi on Saturdays and stuff like that. Other than that, I wasn't really that conscious of these things. You know, and I reckon when I was growing up as a kid, my dad used to work. So what would happen is my dad started work at midnight. On a, he went on a milk run. And then he came home at 6.30 in the morning and he went to work at the factory behind us at 7 a.m. And he came home from the factory at 3, 3 p.m. and then 4 p.m. or something like that. He had another little second job on the side. He used to metal, polish metal. Then he came home, we had dinner, then mum went to work at the Three Swallows Hotel. Then mum come home at 11 p.m. and then an hour later dad would go back to work. And I never really saw them together that much, you know what I mean? But they hung together right to the end, you know, and uh, maybe I just thought that's the way things are, you know, and I never really thought it through. And uh, as I said, I was always pretty mature as a person in, in that regard, in personal relationships. And no, no one told me anything. I mean, yeah. no, in those days, no one sat down and talked to you about anything. I had the same. My my my, my dad worked and my mum worked night shift and I never seen them together. And I was five years old cooking my own dinner, cooking eggs. I'd have been a, a little chair at the stove cooking and learn how to become self-sufficient. And, um, mate, that's where we learn it from, isn't it? How uh, we I love think another. so. Well, we learn everything from – it's not what people tell you anyway, it's what you see. Yeah. Monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. yeah no, it's not what you're told. And I just probably repeated what I saw and I just made the assumption everything's going to be the same as mum and dad. And I didn't know any different. No one taught you school. No one, there was no Instagram. There was nothing. Like, you know, you just I, that was the only thing I was exposed to. You know, I didn't live some sort of mad life where I met other people. I knew my uncles and aunties. That was it. That was the extent of my life. And um, one or two teachers, that's it. And none of my teachers were married. They were brothers. So, you know, they're priests and shit like that. So they didn't know that sort of stuff either. So I guess, you know, when I think about it sometimes in hindsight, it's, it was just inexperience from my point of view. And, I mean, I was married when I was 20. I married the girl that I met, my girlfriend from school when I was 20. And I just finished my first university degree. I, I, as soon as I graduated, I went and married her. Because you had, you had children young too, didn't you? Yeah, I had my first son when I was 25, 24. Those days pretty young. But when I think back, why did I marry her? Like, I'm not she's a good girl, and I don't get me wrong, but... If someone had said to me today, were you in love with her? I, I don't know. I wouldn't even know what love was in those days. I didn't even thought that through. I married her because that's sort of what you did. That was your girlfriend. You got married. Yeah. I just totally inexperienced, mate. And uh, therefore, to answer your question, <laughs> when I say backfilling, um, I backfill um, relationships I want to have, but backfilling doesn't take the place of proper maintenance and, and building proper relationships. Mm, with substance. You know, I have a relationship with my mum and dad no matter what, because they're my mum and dad. They're not going to divorce me. I have a relationship with my kids because they're my kids. They're not going to divorce me. Partners, it's different. You know, you've got to put in. You know, and, uh, you know, because, you know, kids always forgive you. Parents will always forgive you. You can always backfill. Friends will always forgive you. You can always backfill. You can say, oh, shit, let's go and get on the piss or go away. We'll go away for the weekend or something. Everything's sweet again, you know. Wife, partner, it's different, I reckon. And I only know that now. It's taken me a long time to work that shit out. One of my big priorities these days, mate, is my audience. I mean, I, I've, I feel a, 
ethical obligation towards my audience these days. A lot um, of people hang off every word you say. Yeah, That's I a big responsibility. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I never mm. realised it. It sort of can be a bit daunting, to be honest with you, like sometimes. Uh, but at the same time, I feel honoured that people are doing that. So that means yeah, have a, I have a responsibility. I have to keep feeding that thing. Everyone needs a mentor. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I'm lucky I've had him in the past. In business, who are your mentors? Well, probably, for sure, David Babsky, the senior partner of the law firm I worked at, uh, Simon Zabowski. David definitely was for, for a number of years. I was there for about seven years. You know, the, the usual stuff, parents and stuff like that, that's for sure. Um, and at school, I told you that brother Quentin was for sure. But later on after that, Kerry was clearly a mentor. I didn't realise it at the time, but he was. I mean, I learned. You're talking about Kerry Packer? Yeah, Kerry Packer. I learned so much from him. It's crazy. And what role did you work for him as? Well, I didn't. He and I are partners. Mm. He was my partner at um, in a business called Wizard, so we owned 50%. Oh, is that who it was? I was, I was trying to work out who it was. Yeah, and I was the other 50%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're 50 50. Um, and then, I mean, I dealt with James too, but Kerry was more mentored well, just by age. But James mm. much younger than me, but J- Kerry was. Obviously, no, not that. He, Kerry wasn't that much older. And how did you jag that? How did you, a young bloke from Bankstown, getting in t- contact with the richest man in Australia and put that together? How did you put that deal together? That's a miraculous feat. Yeah, um, well, I, I guess it's luck, to be honest with you, Russell. Like, I mean, I, again, I, I move in all different sorts of circles, okay? So I had a good mate, still a good mate, very good friend of mine, a guy, a guy called David Gingell. So David used to be the boss of Channel 9. These days he's retired. He's younger than me. Um, and David's dad was Bruce Gingell, yeah, the, the very that, first person. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he was Kerry's best friend. Yeah, David was Kerry's godson. And James' best mate. And ja- was James' best mate? <laughs> not not these days. <laughs> and uh, and but, but look, I know they love each other yeah. like brothers, but they just can't be in the same rooms as each other for for a whole lot of reasons. Da- um, David and I got close, and then David, I got on the board of Sydney Roosters, and James used to be on the board of Sydney Roosters used to be, and David was on the board of Sydney Roosters. And I go to the footy and I'd see James and I'd see Ginge and, uh, you know, you know, I was a single bloke, we chat, mag, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. James said to me, look, mate, do you mind talking to me about we're trying to buy Aussie home loans and we're trying to buy Rams? John Simons, yeah. Yeah, we're trying to buy them. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, look, you've got this wizard business. He said, like, you must know all the questions you've got to ask. I need to ask, you know, all the stuff under the bonnet, you know. Yeah, it's sweet. I come over, have a few beers, and magged about it. And then he just said to me, he said, why don't we buy it? Like, I said, well, I don't want to sell my business, mate. But he said, well, buy half. I said, all right. So he, then he said, well, we come with the old man. And um, that's how it happened, literally. Like, uh, it wasn't, you know, it sounds simple, it wasn't that simple because, uh, you know. What you, what, his initial investment, $54 million, is that what? No, my, initially I said the business was worth $50 million, So you, to get half, you have to put 50 in. But they... Bargain me down or didn't bargain me down, they fucking screw me down. Basically, I got to a point where I was completely fucked and I took 25. But, mate, 25 million is. Uh, it's like 100 million now. Fucking 20 million is a shitload of money. Like, uh, I, I couldn't believe it when I could see 20, a check for 25 million. It, but, and I was very happy. And, I, and that's what I was saying before. Like, you just asked me a question. It's, it's interesting. I looked at the look on your face, it was quizzical. Mate, I don't know why I was able to do a deal with Kerry Packer. Hmm. But we'll put this way. Why was I so lucky? Wow. And that's why I say to you, I'm grateful for everything and uh, why I have the mentor because other people don't get that. And and, I, and all I want to do is share with everybody what I've experienced. And the great thing about that I learned from him as a mentor, you know, I didn't look at, to him as a mentor at the time, but the thing I learned from him is that he was like Danny. Kerry never made a judgment on anybody. He didn't care 
whether you were, uh, you know, someone who owned half King's Cross or whether you're the uh, American president or the owner of, of Microsoft, Bill Gates, he would talk to you and treat every one of you exactly the same. In those days in the cross in the Latin Quarter, which is probably maybe before your time, but I remember it, there was an area called Latin Quarter, there was a guy called uh, uh, Joe something rather, your name just escaped me, but, and he ran that area and Kerry used to be friends with him. And, and Kerry was always, would get him in and talk to him and ask him questions about, you know, g- generally interested in what happened in the Latin Quarter and the King's Cross. And, uh, what fascinated. Was, yeah, yeah he, literally fascinated. You're correct. And he didn't. Mean, and he didn't sort of sit up in some high throne or whatever. Like he was happy to talk to anybody about anything because he was just curious about life. And Not now, many people know that about him. And I learned that from him and that's what I got from him. And then he was happy to share with you what he knew to improve whatever he was doing with you or just share a view to help you get better. Kerry was dyslexic, okay? He didn't read anything. Well, I didn't know that. But what he'd do is he'd want to know about uh, Microsoft. He'd talk to Bill Gates, literally. He wouldn't read the prospectus or anything? No, he'd talk to the boss, the bloke, and then he'd get that information and he wouldn't spend one hour. He'd spend seven hours of them like, and, just, and they would download – and he just question after question after question after question, and he would find all this stuff out, and it just he would just fill him up with all the stuff that these guys have been working on for thirty years. I heard a, uh, a thing about him. He was in Las Vegas, and you might know if this is true or not. With the Texan billionaire, and uh, he flipped him for it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Hundred percent. That's so. The, te- the story goes: the Texan billionaire was bridging up about how much money he had, and he said he's. And Kerry said, "What are you worth?" He said, two hundred sixty-three million. And then Kerry said, "I'll flip you for it." At true. the table. Yeah? yeah, wow! And the bloke shit himself. What a legend! Yeah, I mean the bloke. He so he would back up. You know, he literally would back it up at every level. He was a pretty tough dude, Kerry. Like he was definitely no pushover in anything. In anything, and he was an extraordinarily loyal dude. Like, uh, like to his close group of friends, very, very loyal. And uh, and he he literally loved them and uh, would do anything for them. When you sold Wizard Homelines, you sold it for five hundred million. Was there anything in you that thought? I'll just retire now and just take it easy. I'll buy the big boat. And you most probably would have had all that by then. Was there any? Because that's the every person says to me, why don't these people do these big deals and why don't they just retire? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Like it was me and Kerry, and we had two other partners. And so the deal happened in uh, December the 5th or something like that. I had to go to New York because the people we sold to were New York based. So I had to close it, finalize the deal there. And I had lawyers up, up all night here and whatever. I was in New York. Stay in a fancy hotel, and by the way, I didn't have boats and stuff like that. None of that sort of stuff. I had a nice car, but just just a, a Merc or something. It wasn't anything fancy. When I got this massive amount of money, I went. I went. I didn't know what to do. It was like ten o'clock at night. I had to go to the lawyer's office of the buyer. Did you get a check? Was it like a check in them days? It was. It was a certificate, yeah. like a certificate worth X amount of dollars. Yeah, and it was the biggest anticlimax of my life. I've been working on the deal for about eight months that year. Um, I was on my own by myself. Went back to my room and ordered a pizza. Uh, you get New York pizza, and I thought I'd get a pizza, I had a beer. And I remember thinking to myself, fuck. What was that all about? Like, what have I just done? Like, and it, I, it was a total anticlimax. So, like, I didn't feel any different. Not one bit different. I mean, I was relieved I didn't have a, you know, to worry about debts and stuff like that. But just didn't feel any different, you know what I mean? And uh, I was a bit disappointed because I thought it was going to be like... No Marachi band, no, no fireworks massive, display. I thought it would be a massive thing, you know, and uh, 
went back to Sydney and uh, that's sort of it. And that was, and then I thought I'll just go keep working. I had something similar. Like I, I, I've got a mortgage on a house up at Corumban and I have 500, like 500 grand or something like that. And I, and I went through the bloke and I said, mate, if, what happens if I pay it back on 20 years and you give me the figure? What about 15? And, and I'll, he said, what about five? He said, oh, you're getting a bit carried away. And I said, and I paid it off in 18 months. And when we paid it off, I was waiting for the Marachi band to come up. The singer, Russell owns the house and the fireworks display. And it just, as you say, the biggest anti-climax there was. I, I relate to that. Mate, when, you, when that came out of your mouth, I thought, wow, I relate to that. Not in the, the grand scale as you, you but had. But the scale's irrelevant, to be honest yeah. with you, because it didn't make... It's the same feeling. I could only still only buy a pizza. I can't go and buy a $100 million pizza. Hmm. Or a twenty million dollar pizza. I still buy a you know, twenty five dollar pizza in New York, mm. and I eat it the same way as everybody else. And uh, like nothing changed. I couldn't. I couldn't improve my room. My room was like you know, three hundred bucks a night, which is it was a nice room. But I, mean, I, I didn't want to go in a room. I, you know, I didn't want to go a whole level. I couldn't fly back any different. I flew a business class. My business class. I was comfortable. Um, like there was nothing more I could do with it. Like yeah. I can't. I can't eat twenty steaks a day. Ben Iken says it to me all the time. He goes, "Mate, you only sleep in one bed." Like he talks about money. Like he. He got off some big deal. He goes, no, it wasn't – like, when he left North Sydney to go and play for the Broncos, you know, he could have got bigger money. He just said, mate, you can only sleep in one bed, drive one car. He was of the same opinion, you know. Yeah, it's a bit of an – it's a totally anti-climax. And, and someone once asked me, like, what was the most important thing of Wizard Home Loans business? Like, what was the most – like, selling? And I said, well, it was watching the people that were for me get better. Yeah. Uh, that was probably in hindsight – uh, that was the most important thing to me when I think about it now today and watching people become really good at what they do, becoming the best at what they do in our industry and me having a small part in that or at least just being out observed. Being out observed people improve their lives is yeah, fucking great. It's beautiful, great. isn't it? It's the, best. it's the best. My general manager in my company, she started as a receptionist. Now she's the general manager three years later and she's just thriving and and watching her personal growth just gives me so, so much satisfaction, so I relate to that. In uh, the book I was listening to the other day, you were saying that, you know, you, you love yoga. I, I do too, and, you know, do you have a racy mind that needs to slow down? Yeah, yeah, I have a distracted mind, so I can easily get distracted, like with lots of things, like uh, noise. I'm really sensitive to noise, loud noises. I'm really sensitive to um, um, movement. Around me, uh, like people, uh, or anything moving around me, like traffic or pe- people uh, buzzing around. I, I, so we get really so, and my mind gets distracted easily. Um, like not not in a way that I'd get off the topic, but it, it gets um, interrupted yeah. by these things happening in my vision my, or, or in my ear, my in my my, my th- thinking or my hearing. So what I like about yoga is it makes me concentrate on one thing because it's so fucking hard. Mm. And you've got to breathe, and I like the breathing go. You know, it's, it's interesting, and they make you breathe a certain way through your nose, and they make you have that, um, make that noise with your breath. So when I do all that stuff, it makes me concentrate on just one thing. And in order to do it, to concentrate, I've got to block everything out. I've got no choice. I can't, otherwise, I can't do the thing I'm supposed whatever position I'm supposed to be going in. So, yeah, yoga is very important to me. I find it one of the times that I meditate the best, I believe in meditation too. I like to meditate. I like to – I'm not some guru or going me wrong, but I have now got the ability to completely block everything out and just think about – or have no thought in my mind. And yoga helped me do that as well. So they're the two things I get from it. I went to a health retreat up in them, health retreat, drug rehab. The guy said to me, you know, the people who had the most success rate of completing that program 
done the compulsory yoga. And I used to go in there and do it in percentages. I'd say, okay, that was 5%. And I wanted to improve the percentage that I was in it, you know. It changed my life. It yeah. changed my life to be able to slow my mind down and give myself some respite from that madness. Yeah, well, and madness is probably something I can suffer from. Yeah, I, I, I have a that type of personality. Certainly when I was younger, not not as much these days because I, mean, I just get you run out of energy a bit as you get older. But when I was younger, uh, I definitely had a madness about me, both in my mind and you know how I live my life. It, it was a bit um, hectic. Were you the guy that weighed, weighed up the pros and the cons of anything? Were you a risk taker? No, nah, no, nah, risk taker, total yeah. daredevil. I'd do anything. Yeah. Especially if I'm on the drink. Mate, you would have made a great bank robber. Oh, mate, on the drink, <laughs> yeah. I'd do anything. Like yeah. uh, every time I've ever hurt, injured myself, it's been because, you know, I've been doing something stupid. Like, you know, like I remember when one of my kids got christened, I climbed up on the roof and my, my brother and I started a, a lamb on the spit at six in the morning. I was drinking red wine from six in the morning. I, I remember by the time everyone arrived, I was drunk. Um, and I wanted to show you know, someone, you know, I can't remember who it was, I, the view because I thought well, maybe I could, you know, extend my house and there was a view from the roof and I would climb up the fucking roof and <laughs> fell through the roof, <laughs> through the fucking, broke the tiles, through the roof, through the plaster, everything, like straight. <laughs> and my mate was coming down from Queensland to, to join us for the thing and by the time we got there I was in bed asleep, the stitches, up, my foot all stitched up and I was fucked. And, uh, yeah, but that's the drink. And it's the reason I don't drink today I, mean, no, I, don't drink I, I might have one drink a week some, but i don't drink today because you know i don't trust myself on the drink and everything bad's about me is when i've been you've got that obsessive trait that obsessive trait now to be successful as you are you, I, I, I talk about it my brother asked me to talk in his networking meeting and i said um i've got the same things you guys have got two two uh, two traits behavior traits i'm obsessive compulsive and they said what so i used to be a heroin addict and a bank robber and i go what and I said, but you guys have that same thing. You've got to be obsessed about making your business success and you've got to, you know, take chances to make it happen. And I said, oh, and that's me. What I did, I've got off the drugs and I converted that into business. And that, that takes that takes a lot of intellect to do that. So, you know, there's not a lot of people have those same obsessions and addictions and can never turn it around. To turn it around doesn't only take courage from what you've done. But and like just got to be brave, but you've got to be intellectually brave and you've got to make that leap. You've got to make that decision. It's a big call. Mm-hmm. How do I turn around this ability that I have? Because I see addictive uh, personalities and obsessions as an ability. Mm. But it's, if it's directed the wrong direction, I, look, I say often there's nothing wrong with being paranoid, having paranoia in business. And there's nothing wrong with being obsessive. What you've got to do is identify those two characteristics, behaviours, and know when to call on them and when to place them back where they are. Now, a good example of this was when roosters were playing souse. When souse were putting it on, our roosters guys got emotional and started responding by putting it on. Mm. Instead of, you put it on a little bit, you can harden up, yeah, sure, but then you've got to go back to- Reset. Park it and go back to why you're there what you're doing, and then go and play footy and win. I think with those sort of behaviours like compulsion um, or obsessive behaviour, feeling paranoid about everything all the time, what I try to do these days anyway, and I've learned to do through, you know, just through making mistakes, is to identify those things, call on them when I need them, and then when I don't need them, put them back. I have this theory that I have a box, imaginary box, that when I go home at night, I open the box, 
I put all my shit in there, close the box, and I'm not going to open it tomorrow morning, till tomorrow morning. I don't even look at my diary. So is that you You turning off for the day? Is that how you turn off? Yeah, I put all my worries in that box. Everything that's – there's always something that's bothering me because if I don't, I won't sleep properly, you know. And then I wake up in the middle of the night and then I'll start thinking about the thing. No, I just say, no, I can't solve anything. It's in the box. I'm not opening the box tomorrow morning. It's an imaginary box. I'm not going to open it tomorrow morning. Well, what, what's the point of worrying about it at 2 o'clock in the morning? You can't solve it. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't. I, this is just a process I go through. Yep. And sometimes I just – then I might meditate and I just try and block everything out of my head and eventually I'll fall back to sleep. But I have these little weird processes that work for me. doesn't work for everybody, I guess. But it's, it's about me identifying things that work for me and then using them when they work for me and putting them away when they don't work for me. But if you, you can use those – those traits are powerful traits. They're really powerful. Mm. I've been up since two o'clock this morning. I went, me and the girl went and trained at two, do this, then I've got a meeting, and then, and then I've got a podcast that kicks off in Western Australia, kicks off at nine o'clock, and I'll go to 12 o'clock tonight. But I know at 12 o'clock tonight, I'm going to struggle to sleep. I know that I'm going to have trouble turning. How do you turn off? I tend to, this sounds a bit boring, but I, I read a bit, and uh, and I'll, at any one time, I'll have like four or five books going at once. Like, just, I'm not reading because I don't read fiction ever. I only read, um, you know, I'm, I'll read poetry, but I don't read any fiction. I don't read. Have you read Fortunate Life, A.B. Facey? No. Nah. One of the best books I've ever read. I what reckon. is it? What type? He's uh, it's an autobiography um, about a guy over in the Western Australia, an old bloke that grew up clearing the wheat belt, and then he went to Gallipoli, Gallipoli and his brother died in his arms. And all he can ever say is, like, he's getting flogged doing the wheat belt over there. Like, he was a child slave, basically, and he was saying it's a fortunate life. And his brother dies in his arms in... In Gallipoli, and he goes, it's a fortunate life. His wife of 60 years dies, and he goes, it's just a fortunate about life. About gratitude. Yeah, about gratitude. One of the best books. I've read it five times. If I'm ever feeling down or self-pitying or something like that, I'll pick it up and read 20 or 30 pages, and it'll reset me. Yeah, and it's – well, I get reset by reading stuff that might be about science or something, some documentary-style thing, like more a, a factual thing, or even, even maths. Like, you know, I have maths books next to me, like – and. Because you're, you're an accountancy background, isn't it? Yeah, accountants and law. Yeah, mm. and I. But I was always good at maths, mm. and uh, like I love mathematics. I did mathematics at university. So for Greek, can you? Probably. You um, invented it. <laughs> my, but my mum's dad was a bookmaker. Yeah, he could just you know, like in the old days, everything was you know, he could pencil everything himself. You know, so maybe I got it from them. My old man's pretty good at maths. Oh, but I just, but that re- that's what resets me. It gets me out of whatever it is that shit me. And there's always stuff, man. I can easily. Get a, get sweaty about something, you know what I mean? Like uh, start sweating on something and uh, filthy on something. Yeah, it's easy, especially was when I was happening. younger. Fucking, you know, like these days I know how to control it. And as I said, why? And that's an obsession. You know, when you start sweating on something, you're obsessing about something. I work out that those obsessions are good in terms of making sure my, I get through what I got to do to get through on a day. But I park it at the end of the day. I park it. And I, I will lock it up, mate. It's imaginary, but I, but these but obsession is imaginary anyway. They're all imaginary things. Mm. The whole lot of them. Just lock them up. I can even uh, see in my own mind as I close my eyes what my box looks like. I know what the box looks like. And sometimes I literally go through a process of something. I know I'm bothered. I literally go through the process when I get home. I go and have a shower, opening that box, like I vision envision it and putting it in the box and locking it. Beautiful. And you can't open that box the next day. Yeah. It doesn't open until the next day. A, it's got a time lock on it. It's got a time lock. It doesn't open up until the next morning when I wake up. That's it. Yeah, beautiful. It's good advice. It's good advice. It's something I'll definitely need. 
Because, you know, they, they talk about, you know, resentment's a rust the vessel that's contained in. You know, I learned that in early recovery. Because that a part of my part of my own recovery was getting rid of resentments about the abuse and stuff like that. It wasn't serving me hate and resentments and all those sorts of things and all of these stuff associated with the abuse was not serving me. And that's what I had to learn through trauma counselling and everything. Like, as you say, put that in that box and put it away. What about anger, though? That's a hard one. Yeah. That's a real hard one to contain, you know, because um, for someone like myself, I watch the news at night and see some pedophile just got a, a three-month sentence of slap on the wrist and... Yeah, like, for me, anger was, not so much these days, but anger man, managing my anger was a big deal. Did uh, boxing teach you to...? Yeah, 100%. And uh, and my anger often would be expressed in a physical way, um, yep. you know, like... You're a physical guy, rugby league, boxing. Yeah, but I just not not with you know, my kids or anything like that, mm. or, or my missus at the time. No, I never in that sort of environment. But like external, I could easily blow up, you know, mm. easy. Training and uh, making sure that I can control my anger. I still get angry every now and then. I get angry with more more with issues now, like you just said, just shit happening, bad stuff, you know, things that shouldn't happen. You know, like we're talking about, you know, uh, corporate people who ruin other people's lives. And nothing of happens to them. Well, they might get six months suspended sentence once they're convicted. They might steal twenty million from a business and rob all the shareholders. Poor bastards who have been saving up their whole life and hoping that they're going to get retire nice. Someone like you go and go rob a joint. And you steal twenty grand and you get three years. Mm. Like, yeah, it's crazy. And that that used to make me angry. That yeah. stuff still makes me annoyed, but I can control my anger these days. And I think it comes a bit with getting old too, mate. Like, I mean, maybe it's too much testosterone when you're younger. I don't know what it is, but like, I mean, obviously it doesn't stay with you forever. The testosterone drops off pretty fast as you get reach my age. But how old are you now, mate? 66, yeah. Mate, they look a day over 45, mate. You're killing it. Oh, man. Beautiful good looks. I'll give you a big kiss later. Yeah, not a problem. I'll pop this, this podcast is all about transformation, healing, and growth. What would you say the most transformative thing, event, has been in your life? The most transformative event? Yeah. Oh, probably without a doubt, it's having children. Nothing to do with business, I don't think. Um, business is transactions for me, just doing deals, transactional, works, doesn't work. But probably the most transformative events in, events in my life and my four sons not being born as much because I wasn't there for a couple of their births, but more they've taught me how to live my life. I've learned so much from my boys about how to be a good person, what it takes to be a good person, than I've learned about every other thing in my whole life. So, And each one of them offers me something completely different. My four sons are all different, all different types of uh, strengths, abilities, weaknesses. So it's taught me about strengths and weaknesses. Instead of me always just thinking I'm, I'm, I'm just got strengths. I've got a lot of fucking weaknesses, and they're the first to let me know about my weaknesses. Having that knowledge from someone who hasn't got an agenda, who I trust completely, has transformed me to probably who I am today. So I learnt more from my kids than I reckon I taught them. Beautiful, and they they see your vulnerability. Hundred percent. They see your authentic. They see your vulnerability. I guess you know they get to know you better than anyone. And they don't mind pointing my vulnerabilities out. So my my sons, if we go we go there for lunch a whole, lots of time together. They'll take the piss out of their father all the time, all the time. 
and uh, and and each other, and it's self condescending. So fucking good, like yeah, you'd you know, need that, mate. I you? totally need that because I live in this world where we goes, oh, my boy is this, that, and the other, mm. and all that shit. And you've got what you've got like how many you got twenty two hundred people working for you? Twenty five hundred, yeah. Yeah. You sort of can put yourself up a bit a bit of pedestal. My boys bring me back down. Not in a bad way. They're not trying to do it, they're just being themselves. Yeah. And they allow me to be myself too. They don't mind taking the piss out of me. And I think they also know that I acknowledge my vulnerabilities now, these days. It's taken me years to do it and understand how that all works. Yeah. But it's really been transformative. It's the thing that's that makes me happier as a person. Because uh, if you s- stack up all your vulnerabilities inside and you just park them and you don't deal with them, mm. it chews away at you. It's a good feeling, though, totally. being vulnerable. Totally, 100%. And, and th- as men, we try, we fight everything not to be. But it's a good feeling, it's so rewarding. Yeah, and, and like just ang- things like anger. Dad, why are you getting so fucking angry? Like, you know, like just chill out. Like You um, wouldn't have many people that say that in business. No way. And then I go, oh, okay, you're right. Mm. Yeah, sorry, mate, yeah. The game here is to never show that anger because that's weakness. Mm. Before I thought, "Fuck you, I'm going to be angry with you." I mean, like, but now um, it's a strength to know how to manage your weakness, uh, your anger, and and not show any weakness. And sometimes we get angry because we think we're trying to be tough, and you know we're trying to show everyone we're not weak. Yeah, it's around the other way. Yeah, and th- that's transformative stuff, and that came from my kids over time. Teachers, great teachers. Kids are teachers. Mark Burris, thanks, mate, for coming, mate. Uh, I, I really, I was really keen to meet you. I'm glad I met you at the airport. I'm glad it feels like I've known you for 25 years. And, uh, mate, uh, let's do it again sometime. Well, mate, it's not the end for this, from my point of view. Because I'm sure we'll catch up again. No worries. Thanks, Chen. Listener.